Ted Bohorquez here with News Talk KZRG. Welcome to this week's episode of Plot Summary. This is where I uh, I take everything that Bader, Steve, and myself talked about on the morning news watch at News Talk KZRG, and I sort of take that plot and I summarize it. Uh, hence the name Plot Summary. Pretty aptly named. Thank you very much. I named it myself. Anyway, let's jump right into it this week. A lot of big things happened in the news this week. A lot of things that we discussed on News Talk KZRG. The big one was Lefsa. If you didn't see on Friday, Steve, Peter, and I had some Lefsa that my Aunt Lori sent. It was very good. You can check that out on our Facebook replay. But the more important news here is that the turtle is back. That's right, Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell was reelected to Senate GOP leadership despite a lot of vocal opposition. You know, for instance, Missouri Senator Josh Hawley, he was vocally not going to support Mitch McConnell. Newly elected Missouri Senator Eric Schmidt, and so on and so forth. There, there was some pushback against Mitch McConnell, and basically the argument this week was that they felt, and those that didn't support the turtle, felt that Republicans needed newer, younger leadership. Somebody that hasn't been around for, you know, a hundred years. Mitch McConnell, he's been the leader of the party since 2007, which is a pretty long time. You know, he's been in charge of them for 15 years now. So the cry for newer, fresh take doesn't seem unwarranted. But despite that, Mitch McConnell did win uh, GOP leadership. He was reelected by his peers. There was some arguments this week that it wasn't so much that Mitch McConnell won because they loved him, that people loved him. Uh, some argument was that it might have been they just didn't like who was running against him. Mitch McConnell's challenger for GOP leadership was Florida Senator Rick Scott. And there was a lot of complaint this week about how Rick Scott ran his campaign, so to speak, for GOP leadership. A lot of people were complaining that most of his conservative literature was just about how great Rick Scott was. Uh, they felt that a lot of what he was preaching, so to speak, was more about himself than it was about the party or about the movement. And, well, I can't really blame politicians for voting for someone that at least cares about the movement. right? I would rather have an older guy that has been around longer, that cares about the movement clearly, than a newer, young, slightly younger guy with the fresh take that's all about himself. E Politics is a very egotistical field of business. It very much so is. But where we can cut back on ego in politics, I think we need to. And uh, if Rick Scott's ego was so big he couldn't put it aside for the sake of the party and for the sake of the movement, then maybe it was a good thing Mitch McConnell won re-election. Those are the arguments that we talked about this week on the Morning News Watch. Another big one, speaking of re-election, is Nancy Pelosi. And uh, this is good news. This is anti-re-election. Nancy Pelosi will be stepping down from Democratic leadership. Woohoo! We did it. We survived. Somehow this country was able to survive Nancy Pelosi's tyrannical reign that she's had all these years. We were able to do it. We made it through. And if we could survive Nancy Pelosi... And if we were able to scave off Hillary Clinton back in 2016, I'm sorry. I think this country can do anything because those were massive tests of our system and a massive strain to the concept of freedom and liberty. And yet we were able to survive. And I think that's very inspiring. I think that's really solid. Nancy Pelosi, she announced she will be stepping down from Democratic leadership. She did not say that she won't seek reelection in Congress. It's more that she won't seek Democratic leadership within the party. So baby steps, you know, we can really celebrate when she's gone for good, but I think this is cause for some celebration. Baby steps here. Now, an interesting development with this whole news is that some people are thinking this might be a strategical move. Some are arguing that she may be stepping down from Democratic leadership 
as a way of making another Biden term more digestible. But, you know, it's Biden, and this might sound controversial, but I've come to the conclusion that I don't think you can really get mad at Joe Biden. I don't think you can really get mad at him. And the reason why is because it's sort of like when a mother gives the keys to the car to her nine-year-old son, and then, you know, the son crashes the car. Yeah, you can get mad at the nine-year-old for crashing the car, but is it the nine-year-old's fault, or really is the person to blame the adult mother who gave the keys to a child and said, drive, son? Joe Biden is basically that kid. We as Americans, we gave him the keys to the car and we said, go ahead and drive, old man. Let's see. Let Go ahead and drive, old man who's blind and can't speak and doesn't know his name or where he is. Go ahead and drive around for a little bit. Well, when the guy crashes, can you really blame the old guy with dementia? Or should you blame his son, who's an adult, and handed him the keys and said, go ahead, dad, take it for a drive? You know, it's sort of like that. We do have to take a little bit of responsibility for electing an actual geriatric here. (laughs) Personally, I think that most of the blame should go to the Democrats, but we Republicans, we should have voted better. We should have strategized better. You know, we do have a little bit of blame here because, I mean, this guy's a dementia patient. Can you get mad at a dementia patient for being a dementia patient? And when we had a dementia patient driving this country, making donuts in the parking lot, and we had Nancy Pelosi as the person in charge of the house... You know what? Pretty rough. Pretty darn rough. So it is possible, you know, and that was the idea that maybe her stepping down was a way of making it a little bit more digestible. Well, at least Nancy's gone. We still have the dementia guy driving the car in circles running over kids by accident. We still have that. But at least Nancy's gone. That's a little bit more digestible. So that is a possible theory. That's something we discussed this week. Now, the problem with Nancy's little plan here, if that is in fact her plan, is that it might not work. And hopefully it doesn't. Exit polls show that 67% of voters do not want Biden again. 30% of voters do. And that's a broad exit poll. That's everyone in the country. 67 voters say no Biden, 30% yes. Well, here's something very shocking. 94% of Democrats under the age of 30 want a different nominee for president in 2024. I'm going to say that again. 94% of Democrats under the age of 30, which, by the way, is a huge number of Democrats, because as we all know, and as the left will not let anybody forget, Democrats' main voter base are young people. Young people are their primary voter base. And if 94% of all Democrats under the age of 30, which, by the way, I would consider the young people, so if 94% of young people don't want Biden again, oh, man, he is in trouble. I don't think Nancy stepping down is going to be able to save him. According to that poll, age is the number one ranking factor as to why they don't want him back. Now, Joe Biden has not officially said whether or not he's going to be running for president in 2024, though he did state on several occasions that he is interested. So far, nobody has really announced yet, except, of course, for former President Donald Trump. He did announce last week that he will, in fact, be running for president in the year 2024. Joe Biden has not made that announcement, but rumor on the street is, apparently, uh, Jill Biden, the first lady, has already started the early stages of campaigning for president for 2024. Not for her, but for her husband. So there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Joe Biden may want to throw his hat back in the ring. Who's to say? Probably not him because, you know, he doesn't even know his own name. So.
Speaking of running for president 2024, like I said, former president Donald Trump has already announced that he will be running again. Now, there's been some confusing developments, some developments that I didn't really see coming. I know Peter and Steve didn't really see them coming either this week, but they happened this week nonetheless. And that was Trump donors and Trump support. Now, Trump has officially announced for his third bid for president, but a lot of Republicans are holding out on their support. And not a lot of them have yet officially endorsed former President Donald Trump, which is a little confusing given that a lot of them for the midterms, especially and before then, had huge outcries of support for the former president. And yet not a lot of them have endorsed them yet. Now, supposedly they're holding out and waiting to see who else may run. I know Ron DeSantis is a fan favorite right now. It's possible that they're waiting to see if he may throw his hat in the ring. But Other than that, there's not a whole lot of reason that I could see or that we could see this week of why they wouldn't endorse him right off the bat. Now, he does have some endorsement. He he has already garnered five prominent Republicans on his side, including newly elected Carrie Lake. And Carrie Lake is a fan favorite right now. So that is definitely a weighty endorsement. But for the most part, they're a little bit on the on the, the skimpy end there for endorsements. And on the donation side, not just on the political side, but on the donation side, We're also seeing that very same trend. More and more big-dollar Republican donors are saying that they're not going to support Trump in 2024. In fact, three big donors that were key to Trump's victory in 2016 and were prominent in his 2020 run all said that they don't have plans on endorsing the former president or supporting him. There's a lot of reasons for this, uh, and none of, of which are speculative. This actually comes directly from these billionaire donors themselves. Some of them say they blame Trump for the poor midterm results. They think that uh, Trump is so divisive that despite the record high crime, record high fentanyl deaths, record high inflation, record high immigration, record high gas prices, record high everything negative, despite all that under Democratic leadership, somehow it was not a sweep for Republicans. And some of these donors think Trump was to blame for that. They think that he is so divisive that people are willing to cut off a hand and foot to make sure he doesn't get in the office. And that's essentially what this country voted to do. And several other big dollar donors that would normally be a a Trump obvious, but not so much anymore. They said that they are actually leaning towards Ron DeSantis. They think that DeSantis is more conservative in the sense that he can get more things done. He is more experienced and his ego is not nearly as large as Donald Trump's. And some of them are leaning towards DeSantis because they say that they are pro the conservative movement and pro the Republican Party. They're not pro one politician in particular. And whichever individual can best push the conservative movement and Republican Party forward, that is the politician they support. And more and more big dollar donors are thinking that DeSantis is the guy to do that over former President Donald Trump. And that brings me to our very next topic, which is Why no red wave these midterms? That was something we discussed this week on the Morning News Watch, and that was something that was very prominent in the news this last week. Where was this red wave? We all were expecting it, and nobody saw it because, well, it didn't happen. And now that the the dust has settled and it's all said and done, now the finger-pointing is beginning, and the theories are starting to come out. The most prominent one is Trump. A lot of people blame the former president, Donald Trump, as like I just said, being too divisive, potentially turning off some voters or potentially radicalizing the left to get out there and vote. The theory essentially is that Donald Trump encouraged a lot of people to go out and vote, but the wrong way. They encouraged them to vote against Republicans. 
Another idea or a theory that was tossed around this week is abortion. A lot of people think that because abortion was such a prevalent topic since the Supreme Court had overturned the landmark Roe v. Wade ruling, perhaps that also inspired and radicalized a lot of voters to go out to the polls and vote against Republicans because of the abortion thing. That is another theory. Or, and here's a very interesting theory that's relatively new, is perhaps there was never going to be a red wave. Some people this week have been floating the idea around that perhaps the red wave was never going to happen and that we shouldn't be asking ourselves, where did it go? Rather, we should be asking ourselves, why did we assume it would arrive? Well, some of it is assumption, I think, given, again, the high crime, high gas, high everything. Why would you want to continue voting for the party that brought you drugs, death, and despair? <laughs> I wouldn't want to vote for them. But according to, and this is very interesting, according to one major polling company that was in part responsible for the data to suggest a red wave, they said, and I'm quoting from them now, quote, there is a fear they did not include enough Republicans in their samples. Because we knew from 2016, 2018, and even 2020 that Trump voters tended not to respond to pollsters because they thought the results would be used against them. So there is an effort to, as you say, over-index this time, end quote. That is from one of the major polling companies. And essentially what they were doing is when they take these polls, because historically speaking, Trump supporters would purposefully underrepresent themselves in polls. The pollsters and these polling companies then attempted to make up for that in in an honest bid. I believe this was an honest bid to get an accurate reflection of what is happening in the country. I think they were really trying. I don't think this was nefarious at all. But in an honest bid to try and accurately reflect where the sentiment of the country was, they over-indexed how many people would vote red or even or Trump, how many Trump supporters or red supporters or whatever would show up based on the historical dips in polling reflected by the votes in the results that all sounds complicated but basically like let's say let's say in 2016 2018 and in 2020 1,000 more republicans and trump supporters showed up than the polling suggested in all three of those years let's say it was exactly a thousand extra people that they didn't account for show up well that's a pattern they say well historically speaking there's always about a thousand people that don't answer polls that show up and vote trump or vote red that essentially what they did for this midterms in 2022 here is they took that number and they said, well, in all the previous years, a thousand extra people vote red that don't say they're going to vote red. So whatever number we get in polling, we're just going to add a thousand to the end because that's how it always goes. That's accurate. I think they were really just trying to do their best. Unfortunately, they flew a little too close to the sun. And essentially what this theory and the idea that people were floating around this week is that this whole red wave that polling suggested might not have ever been a thing. It's possible they over-indexed, they over-corrected for the amount of people to show up, and those people never showed up. It's a very possible theory, but we're going to need to see the data on that. We should push, we as a country, should push to have these pollsters release um, how they got to these numbers. I think it would be important to see that information. Uh, one other big theory about why the red wave didn't happen this year, uh, and this one really got Steve Scott's blood boiling, is uh, redistricting redistricting might have completely swayed the election. Republican Congress candidates got 5 million more votes in total than Democratic Congress candidates. But due to redistricting, it didn't showcase. We all know that gerrymandering is a heck of a drug that a lot of our politicians and our system has fallen in love with. We all know that redistricting really can sway a vote. 
and it may have swayed this midterm in a slight way. And I, I do believe that did a, a play a role in it this year. And a lot of Republicans also think that it played a, a major role. So there you go. Um, good news is Republicans did take the House. It wasn't the landslide we were hoping for, as we all know, but they took it. And now that they have a little bit more power, suddenly the FBI and all of these initiatives that were run by basically the far left, they're starting to clean house a little bit because they know, well, we might be in trouble. Now now the Republicans are going to start probing. Well, one of the big ones that came out now that Republicans are in charge, February of last year, back when the FBI was basically in, at the will of the Democrats, the FBI raided Rudy Giuliani's office, seizing several electronic devices. They just took it. They also seized the phone of one of Giuliani's close associates in Washington, and they launched a full investigation into him. The investigation was very focused on Giuliani's relationship with a specific Ukrainian prosecutor and whether or not this Ukrainian prosecutor was improperly causing trouble by feeding Rudy Giuliani information about the Biden family's business dealings in his country. First of all, that's completely ridiculous because if a crime was committed, it doesn't matter which witness gave the evidence for this. Of course, you know, you need a warrant. Of course, you need this, this and that. We have a system that we do need to follow those rules. But if a witness comes to Rudy Giuliani and says, hey, I have information about the Biden mafia business dealings. There you go. That should be fair play. And yet the FBI was so afraid of this information coming out. They seized all of Rudy Giuliani's information all of his data, all of his electronic devices. And what the FBI was looking for was some sort of illegal getting of the information, I guess. They, they, were, they were really hoping that Rudy Giuliani maybe, for instance, might have illegally or improperly obtained a warrant. Or maybe some of the information that was used against the Biden family was stolen. I don't know, but they were looking for something. Well, it was brought, whatever they found on Rudy Giuliani's devices, it was brought before the grand jury. And that jury has been hearing all the evidence against Giuliani for the past year. And the past week, the feds went back to this grand jury and essentially told them, never mind. (laughs) The judge was looking for information. They said, you don't have anything here. And these prosecutors, these FBI thugs, they said, never mind. Actually, we take it back. We'd like to retract our, our previous statement, which means they didn't have anything. They had absolutely nothing. And Rudy Giuliani has been obtaining information about the Biden mafia legally. So there you go. The FBI, they had nothing. They had absolutely nothing. The investigation came up completely empty handed. They found nothing. Essentially, what they wanted to do is make it look like they're investigating Rudy Giuliani. So that way, in the court of public opinion, Rudy seems guilty. If all of a sudden the FBI is investigating you, huh, you must be up to something no good. And citizens, unfortunately, tend to be too lazy to then go back months and months or even years later and say, hey, whatever happened to that investigation of Rudy Giuliani? A lot of people don't do that. All they remember is that Rudy Giuliani was being investigated by the FBI. That's the last thing they remember. And yet, the man's innocent. They found absolutely nothing. And by the way, they have yet to apologize, and I doubt they will. But this is just one more bit of evidence of why it's good Republicans at least got the House. Because now that they have the ability to start probing, start subpoenaing, start really investigating the investigators, start watching the watchers, now all of a sudden the watchers are... are You know, they're burning files. They're coming out and saying, actually, we didn't have anything. We would like to take that back. Oh, our bad. You know, we came up empty handed. Now, all of a sudden, they're flushing everything down the toilet at just the threat of being found out. Republicans don't even have the house yet. They're just anticipating getting the house. They they have earned it, but they're not even in yet. And even so, Democrats are already in a panic mode trying to get rid of all the evidence of their nefarious purposes. Well, it's not going to work. 
Republicans are going to find it. And as a matter of fact, here's another bit of good news that came out this week. It looks like it's already going to start happening. The gears are already in motion for Republicans to start investigating incidences. Republicans already have plans, big plans, and I'm excited about it. House Republicans want to investigate whether or not Joe Biden is compromised by Hunter Biden's business dealings with China and other foreign nations. These are their plans, and I'm really excited about it. I'm really excited to see the findings. Now, what they're going to be looking for specifically was whether or not Joe Biden was directly involved in Hunter's dealings. There's sort of this misconception that came out this week on whether or not they're looking to see if Hunter Biden is guilty of these business dealings. They're not looking for that. We already know Hunter's guilty. We already have a tremendous amount of evidence that Hunter Biden has been engaging in sketchy business with adversarial nations. That's not what they're looking for. We already have that. What they're looking for is whether or not Joe Biden specifically was directly involved in Hunter's dealings. Now, keep in mind, President Biden has gone on record numerous times, countless times, saying that he has had no idea and zero involvement in Hunter's dealings. You know, Joe Biden pretty much said, what? Hunt, my son Hunter is engaged in illegal business dealings? How, how could this be? I had no idea. That's been pretty much his stance this whole time. What this investigation is hoping to find out is whether or not Joe was lying about that. Did he actually not know that Hunter Biden was engaged in these nefarious dealings? Or was Joe Biden himself directly involved? Hopefully this investigation will give us a satisfying answer. And there has been a lot of pushback at this announcement this week, obviously from the Democrats. A lot of people were saying this is clearly political. This is unfounded, blah, 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 all this. Well, that's actually not true at all. House Republicans didn't just decide to probe Joe Biden because they were bored. This is a long time coming based off of witness testimony and evidence. Several of Hunter Biden's own business partners have gone on record and stated several times, numerous times, that Joe Biden was involved in their dealings. They said that Joe Biden sat in on meetings on multiple occasions or took active part in phone calls during these business dealings and that they would frequently meet with Joe Biden for advice on what to do next. Those are witness testimonies from Hunter Biden's own business partners, not people that he did business with, not people that are friends with him or that were around. No, Hunter Biden's partners in business, the people that engaged with these adversarial nations for money. Those very people said that Joe Biden was active part of it. So there's evidence. Point number one is witness testimony. Other evidence includes Joe Biden being photographed on several occasions, years and years apart, in different settings, different days for different reasons, photographed with Hunter Biden's associates. Those photos were all taken while he was vice president under former President Barack Obama. So we also have photographic evidence that Joe Biden knew these people directly, spoke with these people directly. Now, does that mean he's guilty? No. But it does mean that Joe Biden had some sort of relationship with Hunter Biden's business partners. That is worth investigating because Joe Biden essentially has been saying that he didn't even know who these guys were. He had no point of contact with Hunter Biden's business partners. He didn't know who they were. He didn't talk to them. Really? Because he's that's strange, Joe, because you're photographed with them. So that's pretty interesting. And I think definitely enough to warrant an investigation at the very least. And if that wasn't enough evidence for you, oh boy, there is even more. The GOP leaders also have evidence that Hunter Biden and Joe Biden co-managed or even shared bank accounts with each other. There is evidence for that. And, and not only that, but those very bank accounts that they shared and or co-managed had been flagged previously by the bank for possible illegal activity. 
<laughs> the banks, they have these internal mechanisms that flag for possible illegal activity. They have ways of, of citing this. The, the very bank accounts that were co-managed by Hunter and Joe had been flagged by the banks for possible illegal activity. Now, it was not for sure that it was illegal. Why? Because there was no investigation. When these banks flag it for possible illegal activity, what that means is that people need to then go and investigate these bank accounts, investigate these people. Well, these bank accounts co-managed by Hunter and Joe were flagged, but no investigation was done. So there was no definitive answer of whether or not it was illegal business activity. Well, I think that is definitely worth investigating personally. And I think most reasonable Americans would also think that. The only problem is that most Democrats are not very reasonable. And frankly, they're barely Americans anyway. So there you go. But we'll see how that goes. I'm very excited. You know, I wish the red wave came in a lot stronger, but we got enough of a lead to be able to start doing stuff like this, to start bringing actual justice to the corrupt system that is the Democratic Party. Very exciting. Um, so, yeah, there you have it. There you have it. Uh, a couple of other things that we discussed on the morning news watch at News Talk KZRG this week. The Pelosi story. The plot thickens with the Paul Pelosi attack. A couple weeks ago, an illegal immigrant broke into Nancy and Paul Pelosi's home in San Francisco. Uh, he su- was supposedly there to beat Nancy Pelosi. But she was not home, so instead he attacked Paul Pelosi, which is Nancy's husband, the man accused of attacking Paul Pelosi. He appeared in court this last Tuesday. 42-year-old Canadian David DePepe faced federal charges for assaulting the family member of a politician. He pleaded not guilty. If he is found guilty, he could do as much as 50 years in prison. Now, according to the official story, this is what happened. De Pepe allegedly broke into the Pelosi's San Francisco home at around 2 a.m. on October 28th, snuck into the master bedroom, and found one Mr. Paul Pelosi sound asleep. He then supposedly demanded to know where the House Speaker's whereabouts were and threatened to break Nancy's kneecaps with a hammer. But she was in Washington, D.C. at the time. Now, again, according to the official report, Paul Pelosi then called 911, and responding officers arrived at the front door they opened the door and found Paul Pelosi and De Pepe struggling for control over the hammer. And according to the official narrative, once the police walked in, it startled Paul, who then stopped his struggle, looked at the police, at which point De Pepe gained control over the hammer and whacked him in the head, whacked Paul Pelosi in the head, fracturing his skull, sending him to the hospital. That is the official narrative of what happened. But... There's been a lot of question about whether or not that narrative is accurate, and the plot thickened this week. As it turns out, that very official report of his attack may not be entirely accurate. Now, when that story first initially broke, the initial official story that was released on the October 29th, the day after the attack, the story said that police arrived at the residence, and then Paul Pelosi opened the door, greeted the police, who then invited the police into the home. Which, bam, already a red flag, because in the current official version, quote-unquote official, in the current version, it said that the police let themselves into the home to find Paul Pelosi actively engaged in a struggle. But the initial report that came out the next day from this attack said that Paul opened the door, went back into the home, and the police followed him in. Once all of them were in the home having a conversation, then Paul Pelosi was attacked. So that's strange. Why would they change the story that way? It's strange that the initial account of what happened was retracted 
with this new one, saying that police let themselves in and uh, walked in to find Paul Pelosi actively being attacked. But an individual familiar with the case said that they personally watched the body cam footage from the police officers that night, and it clearly shows that police walk up to the door, they knock on the door, and then they step away from the door and waited. A few moments pass by, then Paul Pelosi opens the door. According to this individual that did watch the body cam footage, then said the footage showed the police being let into the home, at which point police had a brief conversation with Paul and De Pepe, the immigrant that attacked Paul, and then suddenly this immigrant attacked Paul out of nowhere, and that's when the scuffle over the hammer begun. The police were already in the home, and they were let in by Paul Pelosi. So here's the big question that nobody seems to be able to answer. Who opened the door the night that Paul Pelosi was attacked? That's the million-dollar question. That's the mystery. That's the key to this whole situation. Who opened the door on the night that Paul Pelosi was attacked? Because initial reports said that Paul opened it, let him on in. Said, come on in, officers. Make yourselves at home. That was the initial report. It was then retracted, and they said that, well, police let themselves in to find Paul being attacked. And yet, supposedly, this body cam footage clearly shows that the initial report was accurate, that Paul was the one to open the door. So where's the truth? Who opened the door the night that Paul Pelosi was attacked? I'd like to see that body camera footage. I would. And by the way, it's not just about the footage. Because before the original story was retracted, an SF district attorney had stated in court on record specifically that Paul Pelosi opened the door with his left hand. That was something that was said on record by a San Francisco district attorney. There's a lot of evidence that they changed the story. This is 1984 here. They're trying to rewrite the history of what happened. They're trying to change the account of what happened. On record, a district attorney from San Francisco said that Paul Pelosi opened the door with his left hand. On record, the official story was that Paul Pelosi opened the door and let police in. On record, the body cam footage shows police knocking on the door and shows Paul Pelosi opening the door and inviting officers into the home. All that is on record. And then overnight, all of that evidence is deleted, is hidden, is retracted. And this new fantastical story of these hero cops letting themselves into the home and and witnessing this attack, all of a sudden this new narrative that is so clean and perfect and helpful just shows up despite all the other things that were stated previously before this narrative came out. That is 1984, people. I would like to see that footage. I think it should be released. I think it's within the public interest. I really do. But we'll see how that story develops. Um, In other news this week... There was a lot of uh, calls of racism by the left. You know, the left is always looking for new ways to invent their victimhood. And uh, there was a lot of new calls of racism. Uh, the big one was the Powerball, which had a record high, a record high payout of two something billion dollars, which is pretty wild. Well, the left proclaimed that the Powerball as a concept or as a company or, <laughs> or something, that Powerball is racist. Uh, <laughs> They said, the, uh, yeah, Powerball as a concept is racist. Those, oh, man, those racists making lotteries. Grr. Yeah, we had uh, we had a good laugh about that this week on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG. The Powerball is racist. Somebody, uh, some some Democrats, some I guess they're not even Democrats. They're, they're lefties. They're far left people. I mean, at this point, it's like a different thing. But some some lefties, some far left radicalists. Claim that Powerball that Powerball markets more heavily towards minority communities as a way of funneling money out of these communities and into the pockets of the rich. 
According to quote-unquote researchers, and I put that in the biggest air quotes possible, lotteries are of regressive service that is steeped, steeped in racism because low-income groups are paying much larger chunks of their budget on lottery games versus their wealthier counterparts. The piece also highlighted how stores selling lottery tickets are more likely to be located in poor communities within every state and that the state money generated from the lotteries from lottery sales often does not feed back into the communities that the money came from, but rather go into colleges and higher income school districts. So now let's break down all those claims one by one, because a lot of them are incredibly flawed. Um, The first one that Powerball is marketed more heavily towards minority communities Uh, I think that's called knowing your audience. And here's what I mean by that. If I'm a millionaire, I already have millions of dollars. I'm not necessarily going to be enamored by the concept of just magically winning millions more. But if I'm someone that is struggling financially, if I'm someone that's living paycheck to paycheck, well, paying $2 for a chance of getting $5 million or in Powerball's case, a billion dollars is going to be a lot more attractive to me. As someone living paycheck to paycheck, I am looking for ways out of poverty. Rich people aren't looking for ways out of rich. They're already rich. They're already out of poverty. So they're going to, so the idea of suddenly becoming a millionaire overnight, yeah, is going to be attractive to rich people too, but less so than someone that's impoverished. So no, it's not that Powerball is tricking minorities into buying lottery tickets. It's that the rags to riches story is a much more real, palpable, and authentic story that strikes a much more powerful chord with impoverished families than it does with rich families. I don't think Powerball is tricking people into spending money. I think they know their audience. And if you think that's a flaw, then that's fine. Maybe you think they are taking advantage of poor people by by, uh, knowing their audience. That's fine. You can think that. But it's not racist, and it's not done with malice. They just know that impoverished people are more likely to purchase this product. So that's the first thing. Now, the other claim they made is, again, that low-income groups are paying larger chunks out of their budget on games versus their wealthier counterparts. That's their argument. And my counterargument to that is, duh, is that a shock to you? If I'm someone that's paycheck to paycheck and I only have $20 in my pocket and a scratcher is worth $2, then guess what? That's 10% of my entire budget. If, but if I'm rich and I have $300,000 in the bank, and that scratcher is still worth $2, then yeah, of course that's less money percentage-wise that I'm spending as a rich, as a rich person. <laughs> that's such a ridiculous argument to say, well, you know, poor people are spending a much higher amount of their budget on it. Well, of course they are. Not because poor people are spending more money on it, but because $2 is worth a lot more to someone living paycheck to paycheck than someone that has a million dollars. Duh. So no, that's not shocking news. That is taking statistics and making it sound a lot worse than it is to make Democrats and minorities victims. So is the lottery racist? I don't think it is. I think when people's backs are against the wall in a poor economy, they're looking for any way out, and the lottery suddenly becomes a, a an attractive way out, a potential. But the left like to find ways to make black and brown people feel even worse about themselves by making ways, making up ways to make them seem like victims. That's sort of how they rule. And by the way, if you don't think that's enough, if you don't think the Powerball being racist is a good enough claim, there's another racist claim that the far left made. Uh, They claimed that, the far left claimed this week that masks stop racism. (laughs) They are claiming that wearing a mask actually stops racism. You want to end racism, everyone should wear a mask. That'll do it. The New England Journal of Medicine published a study that says, quote, 
We believe that universal masking may be especially useful for mitigating effects on structural racism in schools, including potential deepening of educational inequalities, end quote. That was in the New England Journal of Medicine. Of medicine. I didn't know that medical professionals were looking at ways to stop racism. I had no clue that was on their agenda, but apparently that's part of their job now. They're not just looking at ways to create vaccines or, you know, study viruses or how do how does sickness and flu and bacteria spread? They're also looking at how does racism spread and how can we stop it? So great news. I'm glad that the the New England Journal of Medicine is so focused on structural racism. Thank God we have the doctors trying to solve that problem. In less fun and in less funny news, a little more seriously here, the economy is still in a, a pretty sharp downward spiral, and a lot of tech companies have been laying off people. Amazon, uh, they had to lay off 10,000 workers in their corporate and tech positions. 10,000 employees of Amazon were laid off. All this due to the economic downturn and in preparation for an even further downturn. Facebook, they laid off 11,000 workers this last week. Twitter laid off 3,700 workers this last week. And Lyft laid off 1,000 workers this last week. And by the way, I would like to point these out. Amazon, they laid off 10,000 people. Facebook laid off 11,000 people. And yet, for some reason, Twitter has been getting all the media attention for their layoffs. And they've laid off 3,000 people. Facebook laid off 11,000 people, media silent. But Twitter gets the media for almost 4,000, not even quite 4,000. Twitter gets all the media attention. I wonder why. I wonder if it might have something to do with the fact that the media is run by a demonic lefty death cult and Twitter is run by now self-proclaimed Republican Elon Musk. Hilarious. Um, Speaking of which, uh, a funny story came out about Twitter's layoff scheme. Again, Twitter laid off 3,700 people. Facebook laid off 11,000 people. Just want to throw that number out there. A report came out about a Twitter manager who (laughs) – a story came out about a Twitter manager who was told by – instructed by Elon to basically make a list of individuals that worked under him to fire. Elon said Twitter is downsizing. He went up to his managers and said, I want a list of 100 people that you think we can can fire. One Twitter manager told the media – that uh, when he got that memo that he needed to cut 100 people from his staff, this Twitter manager vomited into a trash can because Musk ordered him to fire some employees. He vomited into a trash can. That is the most spineless, wimpiest, most beta male thing I've ever heard in my life. This man is a manager. He manages people. He is a leader. His job is to make tough decisions. And when told because of the economic downturn that was brought upon by his candidate, by by Joe Biden, the left, this economic downturn was brought upon us by the left. And because of their policies, they have to downsize. And this manager vomited at the news. Dude, grow some balls, man. Unbelievable. You're going to throw up because you have to fire some people. I'll fire people right now. You want to be a manager? You're going to have to learn to toughen up, buddy. That is the funniest thing I've ever heard in my life. You vomited because you were asked to do your job? That is hilarious. <laughs> so, but you know what? Those are the type of people that are working at Twitter. And by the way, these are also the very people that are advocating for some sort of civil war. They, you know, they think that these people that throw up, that vomit, because they have to fire a few people from their super cushy 
white-collar job. These are the people that think they're going to take over this country in a civil war. Give me a break, bro. Unbelievable. Yeah, the left, um, really spineless. Really spineless people that we're up against here. Speaking of economic downturns, the economy has gotten so bad that homeless camps are starting to shut down. (laughs) That's how bad the economy has gotten, is that uh, the homeless can no longer afford to live. That is terrible, man. Oh, my God. It's gotten so bad the homeless can't afford to live. Oh, man. Uh, New York City is closing down a homeless camp because the government can no longer afford to 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 run it, essentially. Um, Now, this homeless camp that was uh, created by the city, this was not a normal homeless camp. This was very much so an abnormal homeless camp, in my opinion. This camp was one of their bigger ones in the city. It it was structurally very large in terms of square footage and in terms of the infrastructure that was put in place. The homeless people that were living in this camp had access to 24-hour services there, including laundry, free laundry services, their choice of, quote, culturally appropriate foods, all for free. Uh, they were getting free television. They they were getting they had free TVs. They were the, the the government was handing them out free TVs. They had free water as well as free lavatories. The city was paying for all of it, and by the city I mean taxpayers were paying for all of it. And this camp was opened up for about a month, and now it's been shut down because the city can't basically they can't afford it anymore. You know, I'll tell you what, man. I wish I lived in New York because. I wouldn't be paying my rent. I'd just be hanging out there. I have, you know, I get free haircuts, free laundry, free food, free water, free culturally appropriate food. I'm Mexican. I can just get tacos all day. How great is that? I love that. But, the, you know, the dream is dead because that uh, that camp shut down because it was started, it was costing them too much money. Oh, man, that is, um, we're in some real trouble here. And finally, we have some international news um, that we discussed this week on the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG. A Russian missile flew into NATO territory and killed two people in Poland. And this is very serious because, you know, we all know that there's a war going on in Ukraine and in Russia, and that is serious in of itself. But the really scary part about this is that this is a massive opportunity to escalate this war and bring the United States into fighting it. Russia had been fighting a war in non-NATO territory. Ukraine is its own sovereign nation. It has no ties. Now that they have launched a missile into NATO territory, we have no choice but to retaliate. And that is the fear that a lot of people are having. Now, this missile hit an area in Poland that uh, it basically hit a village on the outskirts of Poland where it, it hit a grain factory and it killed two workers. There's been a lot of back and forth about what this means, where this came from. But the general consensus from what Russia has said, as well as what NATO countries, including the United States, has said, is they believe it was an accident. They believe it was not it was not purposeful. They think essentially it was either some sort of misfire or the missile was meant to target somewhere else and accidentally ended up there through virtue of the wind and the atmosphere and God knows what. Some people think that the missile was meant to hit a Ukrainian target, but then a, a Ukrainian defense missile actually struck that missile, knocked it off course, and it went flying to God knows where and somehow ended up in Poland. That is also a possibility. Some people argued this week that it wasn't a Russian missile at all, that it was actually a Ukrainian missile that was just made in Russia, also a possibility. At the end of the day, no one really knows where this missile came from, where it was going, and how it ended up there. All they know is that it is vaguely Russian in the sense that it is a Russian missile, and that escalation could spawn because of this. Now, 
what we discussed this week on the Morning News Watch is what a lot of people think, that personally, I think it, it was an accident. It seems to me that if Russia really wanted to escalate this war, they would choose a much more strategic target for their primary strike on a NATO nation, much more than some random grain factory in the middle of absolutely nowhere. You know, if they really wanted to attack NATO, suck us into the war, they probably would have a much more coordinated attack. I'm thinking like a I'm thinking a, a highly coordinated bombing of like 12 different airstrips across NATO nations all at once in one night. Catch us with their pants down, so to speak. That seems like a much smarter move than a random missile landing in the middle of a field in Poland accidentally striking a grain factory. Nobody really knows where it came from. And so far, there has been several calls for escalation, but there's also been several calls for de-escalation. The U.S. military, along with President Biden have both been very strong and consistent in their stance that they will defend every single NATO territory, no matter what. But both the military and Biden has also been consistent in their stance that they believe this was an honest-to-God accident. A little bit scary. I'm going to leave you on that scary news, and we will follow it closely next week to see what happens. Be sure to tune into the Morning News Watch at News Talk KZRG. You can check us out on our Facebook page as well as our Twitter. We're doing No Shave November. Next week is going to be a slightly shorter week because it is Thanksgiving, so we're not going to have a Morning News Watch on Thursday morning or Friday morning, but we're still going to be delivering you the news. And if you ever miss anything, you can always get a full recap right here at Plot Summary with News Talk KZRG.